You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 22 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts. Joining me today, I have a small in number, but very high in quality panel. We have Antonio Rosario back with us again. Hi, Antonio. Hi, Bart. How are you doing? I am doing fine, apart from the fact that I hate summers because they're so stressful in work, but I'll get over it. <laughs> it's nice and warm here in Brooklyn today. It's actually I... one of the best days we've had this year today. Beautiful. I don't think I have worn long trousers in two months. <laughs> I've been cold a few times, but I haven't worn long trousers in two months. <laughs> Uh, also with us is Stefan Lesage uh, from Tech45 podcast, which you need to speak Dutch for, but it's a good podcast. Hi, Stefan. Hi, Bart, and thank you for the kind words. I, I love you guys. It's freaks my, it freaks my husband out a little bit when there's like random words he can't understand coming out of my iPod, but I love it. I love <laughs> yeah, a little bit of... You know. It can be uh, useful to learn some Dutch that way as well. Yeah, although you guys... Some Dutch. Th- there's an awful lot of English words in a technical podcast, no matter what language yeah, it's in. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny. Anyway, we are trying out something new and experimental today. Um, I don't know how well it'll work, but we'll give it a go. So the show is called Let's Talk Photography, but today we're going to take it exceptionally literally and we're going to talk about photographs. I have asked everyone on the panel to pick two or... Well, I've asked everyone to pick three, but we're definitely going to do two from each and we might do a third from each. And we're going to basically put the links to these photos in the show notes. So this is very much a show where you probably want to have a look at the show notes before listening to the show. We're going to link to the photographs, and then we're going to talk about them. And I hope it will be interesting, uh, but we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and go first, since this was my harebrained idea. So the first photograph I have chosen is... I'm kind of intentionally stretching the definition of photograph, because I don't like shows that get all, you know, uptight. Oh, that's not a photograph. So I figure, let's, let's make it clear that this show is about a broad range of topics. So the image is called Particle Tracks, and the author is CERN, the Centre European Research Nucleaire, or the place where we do all the particle physics, and the Large Hadron Collider hangs out. So this is actually a photographic image, even though what you see is not immediately obviously photographic. It could be some sort of CG. It could be it could be God knows anything. So... This is actually a photograph that has then been, after it's been taken as a photograph, it's been tweaked a bit. So the color is fake, but the actual squiggly lines are all real. Uh, So what this is, this is an image taken in a scientific piece of equipment, which is called, specifically, this is the big European bubble chamber. So this is a... There's a, I'll put a link in the show notes to the actual piece of apparatus that this photograph was taken in. Uh, in the pre-show, the guys were saying it looks like some sort of 1950s robot head. It has two windows that look like eyes. And in here, there would be a liquid which was kept superheated and radio, a radioactive or a source of particles would be placed at this chamber. And there's a magnetic field all along the chamber. And as the particles come out, they give the liquid that's superheated. They give it the teeniest, tiniest little tip over the edge. 
And everywhere the little particle goes, a tiny little bubble is formed. So that's why it's called the bubble chamber. And so these subatomic particles, smaller than an atom, cause a trail of bubbles to race through the tank. And if there was no magnetic field, all the bubbles would just race in a straight line and it would be a really, really, really boring photograph. But because there's a magnetic field there, each of these little bubbly things, which is electrically charged, they all curl depending on how electrically charged they are. So the more electrically charged they are, the tighter they'll curl. And so this is actually a way of measuring properties of subatomic particles. But it is also spectacularly beautiful. So I think the reason I chose this was because I love science, I love photography, and this, to me, shows the beauty you can find in places you probably weren't expecting it. So, anyone else have any thoughts on my choice? It looks a bit like the old... uh... Uh, how was it called? The uh, Mandelbrot uh, renderings? Yes, actually. Uh, Antonio, I think you had said as well that it looked fractally. Yeah, yeah. Um, it made yeah. me think of that when I, when I, when I noticed it, a Mandelbrot drawing. Uh, yeah, it's nice. Nice colors. Nice. Uh, yeah, especially so the col- if you know the history behind it. Yeah, so each of those is a little subatomic particle and they're breaking into other subatomic particles, which is why some of the lines split and then they're all curving off. I mean, there's an awful lot of science there, but it is very pretty. So, I think I've actually even seen this used on things like ties and stuff. It's quite a famous image. And Bart, mm-hmm. you were worried that it wouldn't be considered a photograph. It was on the edge of photography. But if we take the word photograph and break it down, photograph, photo, light, graph, graph right, map, map. It's a, a mapping of light. So, you know, if we... Yeah, okay. We look at the broad definition of photograph rather than what we think it is. This very much falls into that range. I mean, and it's kind of literally a mapping of light of of these trails, these particle trails. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So just a, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's it's a photograph. It's a photograph. And, it, and a piece of science and a piece of art all mushed into one. So. Yeah, but it's very much reminiscent of the uh, the fractal imagery. Um, obviously, this was before fractals became very popular. Uh, I mean, it was about ooh. the nineties. No, this, this 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 image was released in nineteen ninety. Yeah. So mm. Mandelbrot. No, Mandelbrot is before then. Yeah, it was right. But when that. those images started becoming popular, were it's about mm. the late. I can remember uh, them being popular when I had a a Commodore sixty four and then even Amiga and. Then, Back in the days. Yeah. That would be what? The late 80s, yeah? Yeah, probably mid-80s. Yeah. yeah. Mandelbrot set, Mandelbrot set. I now have a song stuck in my head by John <laughs> Coulton. Um, I'm rapidly Wikipediaing, but history. Mandelbrot set, 1978. The first. The first The first pictures of this fractal were drawn in 1978. Actually, not by Mandelbrot. <laughs> IBM did it, no? Uh, yes, yeah, at IBM's yeah. Watson Research Center. Yeah. So, yeah, so eighty, so late 70s, 80s. Right, but then, I'm thinking about when the actual imagery started to become more popular in culture-wise. Um, I think it was around the time okay, when, yeah. when the desktop computers were able to produce it, like Stefan was saying, with the Commodores. And I was doing it with my Ooh. Amiga computers, but uh, 
I produced an an app for drawing the Mandelbrot and Julia sets as my fourth year project in computer science, and I graduated in 1997. So yeah, that that fits. Yeah, yeah. So in this image, the the colors are added after. Yes, so this would, yes. Af- this would effectively be a black and white image. They are right. lines of bubbles. There is, there is no color. So that you can see oh. the, differentiate the, the, the paths. Yeah. yeah. So if, if, if you stick, like, effectively a bubble chamber is a modern version of a cloud chamber. So if you stick cloud chamber into Google Image Search, you'll see what the sort of things they are before they get colorized. So they're basically so Bart, squiggly lines. Bart, what is it about this image that affects you i mean what's the what's the draw well for me as a my love of physics like so these the things making those lines are smaller than an atom which is smaller than a human can possibly conceive and yet we're thanks to technology we've been able to to make visible something that is as invisible as it could possibly be but yet we can see it and not only can we see it but the tightness of the curves is actually telling us something about these unimaginably tiny things that make up the atoms, that make up the molecules, that make up us. And kind of, you know, it's one of those images that the more you know about it, the more it makes your head explode in a good, in the good way. Like, <laughs> so you know, it's it. I, I think it is a deep photograph, and I'm not sure they get much deeper than that. Yeah, the the again, the thing that strikes me very similar to fractals is how the patterns in this image are you you see these patterns every day in so many different other objects that are sizes that we can understand so it's really interesting how something at such a small level is mimicked on larger levels and then you know even if you look at this and it it looks like it looks like some kind of illustration of the cosmos in some way like some of those old-time 18th 19th century line drawings of you know the the spheres, all the um, yeah, the, the solids that create that what people used to think the, the universe was created out of the celestial these, you know, spheres. Cele- yeah. yeah, the spheres. That's true. Yeah. It also made me think of um, uh, some of the pictures you see from uh, architectural buildings, like those uh, uh, spinning staircases and, and lines converging. It made me think of something like that. Mm. Oh yeah. So it's interesting. It's, that, it's probably yeah. not, not what you would expect when, you, when, you, when you, you're talking about a photograph, but then again, you sometimes have the same thing with uh, some of those architectural photographs with the lines converging. And uh, uh, for example, like uh, the windows, uh, uh, all lines or, or circles in buildings. It's probably not what you expect when you say, I will show you a photograph, but they are worth watching. It's nice. Probably about as abstract as photo- photography gets, really, isn't it? Yeah. You know the way a lot, of, like in a lot of architecture, if you zoom into it enough that it's not clear what it is, it can really make your head explode. I guess yeah, that's yeah, something yeah. similar here. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, I'm going to who uh, alphabetic? Who comes first? Antonio comes first. <laughs> uh, Antonio, do you want to? You have also decided that stretching the definition of photograph is a good way to have a good conversation. So, do you want to describe your first choice? Yeah, my 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 first choice is not a photograph at all. It's a very wonderful painting from oh the late 1800s. 1872 the Wikipedia. 1872 uh by a painter called I'm going to I'm going to butcher the name cuz it's French but uh Jean-Leon Jerome 
And it's pretty it, good. Yeah, I hope so. And the uh, the name of it is what would you say? It's it's, it's Paulus Latin. Verso. Paulus Verso. So it's a lot of people might recognize this. It's a painting of the inside of the. Uh, uh, why am I spacing out on what this is called? <laughs> but is it actually the Colosseum, or is it just an amphitheater? Well, I think it is the Colosseum because it's it's uh, the scale is very large. And in, in, in yes. ancient Rome, there weren't very many Colosseums this big. And from the picture, I'll just describe it. It's uh, an image showing a, a gladiator standing over a, a vanquished foe while the foe is raising his fingers in submission and the gladiators looking up to the crowd getting trying to get a response from them whether he should kill the vanquished foe and the vestal virgins in white are pointing their thumbs down um which we in modern world assume means not good it generally means in fact that's what the the painting is named after the name the name means uh with a turned thumb yeah, but the, the real controversy is that we don't know which way they turned it. We just know that it, the Paulus Verso meant kill him, but we mm-hmm. don't know whether that was up or down. Yeah, well, I generally thought with a pressed thumb was the, uh, the oh, actual so thumb gesture. In, thumb in, keep him alive, thumb out. Perhaps, yeah. But uh, some people like to think that that uh, um, we came up with the thumbs up, thumbs down in the movies, but this painting proves that, at least in the 1870s, they were thinking that the thumbs down was the... Uh, was the yes. gesture. Anyway, but what strikes me about this, I've, I've looked at this painting ever since I was a kid. And to me, it's very, very photographic in, in its, I mean, it's very photorealistic. The lighting in the painting is, is really interesting because in the background, the crowd is in the sunlight and in the foreground, the crowd is in the shade. And the Colosseum used to be shaded by um, giant fabric sails that were open and closed to help to block the sun out and keep the crowd as comfortable as possible. So the when I look at this in a sense of as a photographer, it, it's very much like an HDR picture, and I don't really like to use that too much. No, but there's it's, there's great texture, there's, there's like which is what you get from HDR-like pictures. There's a lot of texture in this. Well, it's not just the texture. It's the fact that there's equal light in the front and the back. So the back yes. looks, what we'd say, maybe slightly overexposed, but you still see detail. And the foreground, you know that it's in shade because of there's, there's um, shadows of, uh, there's um, beams of light. And you know that that's, you know, if you were taking this with a camera, your camera meter would have a hard time with this exposure. Um, yes. Because there's so much light in the background and there's so little light in the foreground. So you would do an HDR exposure for this. You'd be exposed with hmm. the two backgrounds. So this has that feel, but there's the soft light in the foreground. The shades are creating uh, a soft, diffused light that's hitting the foreground. And to me, it's, it's I mean, besides the fact that I'm, I'm a history fan and I love things about ancient Rome and gladiators, and there was something about this that was very cinematic when I, when I looked at this painting. And, oh, by the way, this painting is also what inspired... Partially uh, inspired Ridley Scott to create Gladiator. In fact, I think he, he, he duplicates this visual in the movie at one point during a fight scene. There's a uh, very famous scene in the movie that I can see in my head now that is so evocative of this. Yeah, yeah, it's when Russell Crowe's fighting this guy with the tigers coming out, and they just the camera pulls out, and there's this type of visual in it where 
there's shade and shadow and 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 sunlight. So I look at this and you know the framing and the 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 composition of course it's a painting so the 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 painter had a while to create this composition but to me it's very much photographic uh, especially because of the lighting it's the light that I'm really that I'm really attracted to in this and what I'm amazed at is to do this in a painting is I think incredibly difficult I mean I I couldn't imagine doing this but to create that soft light and he wasn't there at the Colosseum to do this he had to create this somehow well, I, his... I the date the date is and the, the date gives me you know, a, a thought, eighteen seventy two. That's f- what a few decades, quite a few decades actually. After about forty forty ish years after the invention of photography, mm-hmm. so I know there were other painters at this time who would who would use, basically they would get real humans to stand in the pose they wanted, take a picture, and then if you could imagine lots of photographs. In front of a guy with an easel, <laughs> which would then be used to construct a painting. Well, that's true. There was also the camera obscura, too, where it would just be a box with a lens and the image would be projected upside down on a wall. And if that would imply he built a Colosseum. Yeah. But I think I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced that that happened here, but it's possible because the foreground figure certainly could have been in a studio with a skylight. I mean, and... the, the main the main dude. I mean, there's a lot of people in it, but it's obvious that the main dude is the guy with the golden helmet, and yeah, just the the, the muscle tone and everything. It looks so photorealistic. I just have a distinct impression there was a, there was a guy standing in an empty studio. It's, who, it's, it's it pop. doesn't make it any less of an impressive image, but I, I just it's have still a feeling hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I think photography may be involved here more closely than we think. Well. I think uh was it David Hockney was writing about how uh the camera obscura might have had more of an influence in ancient in in painting than we thought of. So that's that's in, that's indeed possible. Um but again I look at this, you know, I think of like what kind of lens would have been used if this was a photograph. There's a lot of depth of field. The the front of the paintings in focus and the people way in the background are are sharp. So you know, I'm looking at. I've always looked at this from a photographic point of view. I mean, I I, I love paintings, but this one stri- strikes me as very, very, very much a picture. And yeah. I, 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 I sort of keep this on my iPad a lot to look at and to see if I can ever find a similar situation. Not obviously gladiators being <laughs> being butchered. <laughs> yes, you see that around the street every day on your street. Well, this is Brooklyn. It might be <laughs> this is New York. It might happen sometimes. But I, 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 I sort of keep the quality of the light because that's what we're about as fo- mm. photographers. We're really recording light. That's what I was saying before. The photograph is a map of light. We're really out here to, to capture light falling onto objects and to me, this is really much about the light falling onto different objects, uh, uh, people, sand, walls, fabric, uh, and how, how that light is recorded, in this case by a painter, but how would it be recorded by a camera? Yeah. Just uh, on the whole f- photography meets painting thing, um, I've just popped a link into the show notes to a painting by Thomas Eakins, which we know was done by getting models to pose. But the thing is... The, the the painting is not a photograph. The painting is the result of about five or six photographs of models in a studio 
which were then so we know that these were ta- we know that this painting was painted off of photographs because we have the black and white photographs it was painted off mm-hmm. and it's the same sort of era so the, the, this one is 1885 and yours was 1878 wow. so at, at that time photographers uh, sorry painters saw photography as a tool for painting which is an interesting idea well, it must have been very exciting for them back then to have access to this new technology, which could help them or yeah, how does the body look augment their I, I, their their painting skills? Exactly. Yeah, instead of having to get a guy to sit there for ten hours, you got him to sit there for ten seconds. You went snap, and you let him go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that way, you can create more paintings. <laughs> yes, although I guess it means less money for the model because he had to do less work. <laughs> Still had to be naked, at least. <laughs> well, you do for the Thomas Eakins ones. He, he, he had a thing. Like if, if you scroll, you know, he had a thing for naked men, actually, <laughs> now that I'm looking at his stuff. Um, anyway, sorry, a slight diversion. About that. <laughs> well, anyway, that was, that's, you know, I was, when, you, when you proposed this as the subject for this episode... You know, I, I thought throwing a painting in might be an interesting spin. And, and it's also mm. just to get people to start looking at other works of art other than photography to, to sort of draw from. Yeah. You know, well, not draw literally, but I mean. A composition is a, you know, a good composition is a good composition, whether it's, whether it's painted or whether it's photographed or whether it's sketched or whether it's drawn in some other way. You know, a good composition is a good composition. Good light is good light. Yeah, yeah. So we should be open to inspiration everywhere. Um, uh, Stefan, you've been very quiet. Do, 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 yeah, it's a, it's the image also made me think of some some older paintings, like uh, yeah, I think sixteenth century paintings, where uh, there were paintings on people, and you had very much uh, the difference in, in in lightning. I can't remember the name of the painter, but Vermeer. Uh, uh, probably Vermeer's Vermeer is famous for almost certainly having used a camera obscura but mm-hmm. I was uh, more thinking from uh, oh, how were they called the Vlaamse Primitiven we say in, in, in Dutch uh, so Rubens like, like Van Eyck and, and uh, they they had similar similar approach they had some, for example I know uh, of a, a painting um, where you had to, you know the I think it was symbolic from Maria and uh, and Jesus sitting on the throne, and you had a priest next to it, and there was also also a lot of use of of, of light and different lightning in, in the in the foreground on the faces of the people, where you had in the background like uh, uh, more the shadows. But but I think those paintings were even older than that. I, I think it was. Uh, I'm looking at 15th or 16th century or something like that. Yeah, Van Aken I'm getting is 1450 to 1516. That, yeah, probably. That's very early. So I'm, try, I, I'm trying to find that painting, actually. I, th- I threw into the show notes there uh, the Wikipedia article on the Hockney-Falco thesis, which is uh, David Hockney and physicist Charles Falco in, ni- in 2001 wrote a book, Secret Knowledge, Rediscovering the Lost Techniques of Old Masters, where they um, both analyzed the work of old masters and argued that, I'm just going to read the article, they argued that the level of accuracy represented in their work is impossible to create by eyeballing it and probably used optical uh, aids such as the camera obscura, camera lucida, and curved mirrors to create their work. So it's an interesting read. 
and it's indeed possible that, you know, a lot of these older artists used optical, you know, so th then you start to wonder, are they photographers or painters? You know, it's like, where do you cross that line? I'm just saying, isn't the, the, the girl or the, 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 the girl with the pearl earring is not the famous painting yeah, by Vermeer it, where there is depth of field yeah. in the painting. Yes, I think it's. I think that's talked about in this in this book specifically. Uh, you know, shallow depth of field in a painting. I'm pretty sure he was using optics of some sort. I, yeah, I don't think that's yeah. an out there theory. Yeah. yeah. So that very much fits photography. Then we're we're just recording it differently. I mean, today we're using digital yeah. sensors, and back then they were just using their hands because that's what was available. So it's a really slow emulsion, is what you're saying? Yeah, <laughs> an ISO of like <laughs> minus point. <laughs> <laughs> An ISO of three years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, the, the boundary is a lot less clear than we think. Yeah, yeah. A lot less clear than we think. Okay, any any thoughts on this before we move on to Stefan's first? Mm -hmm. ah, hang on, oh, we have a link coming into the Skype. This is yeah. the painting you were talking about, Stefan. So. No, that, that's the one where I think ah. that's the lady with the pearl you were mentioning. That is indeed the girl with the pearl earring. So yes, and I saw this. I saw this. Uh, this was at the Metropolitan Museum. Oh, you've seen the, the actual ago. painting in person? Yeah, there was a Vermeer um, exhibit for a little while. I think this was traveling, and we're pretty sure it was. But there was a Vermeer exhibit. Maybe it was one of his other famous paintings was there. And uh, I was just, it's just amazing to look at these things. Yeah. The, the last one I, I put in the, the Skype is the one I was thinking about. Oh wow! And that's that's a, a very very old, but I think it's probably yeah fourteen fourteen fifty or something. I can't remember the the, the exact dates. People in the fourteen fifties didn't smile, did they? Well, certainly not the, the bishop guy <laughs> well, with the glasses I, in his hand. He's I think that's cranky. that's that's on purpose because the models models can't really stay with a smile on for uh, three ah. or four or five, six, seven hours. Right. So it's the same yeah. as the Victorians who had to sit still for their three minute yeah, exposures yeah. without moving. <laughs> That carpet in that in that uh, painting, Stefan, that looks very photorealistic for yeah, something yeah, from fourteen fifteen hundreds. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to put all of these links into the show notes together with the the, the painting Antonio has been talking about, so that you can all look and see if we if you think we're nuts or not. <laughs> um, but let's move on to the first picture Stefan has chosen. Um, it's called The Keeper of the Dam by someone we may have heard of called Victor Cahiao. So do you want to describe the picture and why you've chosen it, Stefan? Well, uh, I've chosen this picture. There's a, a little story behind it. Uh, I met uh, Victor and uh, uh, at the same time also uh, Alison Sheridan at uh, Blog World. I think it was in 2009. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in Las Vegas at that time. And uh, I know that so we went on a on a... A photo walk in the evening, and I was pretty tired. But Victor, Victor went uh, went out to the to the dam uh, nearby early in the morning, very early in the morning, to take some more pictures. Sadly, I, I missed it; uh, I couldn't join him. But uh, he came back with a few very nice images, and the one I'm uh, I picked is uh, called uh, "Keeper of the Dam." And you clearly see in the in the background you have uh, the sun rising above the mountains. You have some menacing looking grayish clouds and then in the foreground you have a, a I think it was a construction site because they were still building building the dam and uh, there is a strange yeah figure a statue 
which looks like uh, uh, I, I should say probably a Sumerian, uh, something like that. It, it's and almost it, like an Art Deco angel. Yeah, 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 yeah. With its and wings then, up, yeah, yeah, with its wings up, and you have a big difference. And uh, there's some nice color in the foreground, and then yeah, it's 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 special. It's 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 a combination of I think there's probably some some tone mapping or HDR involved, but I'm not quite sure. It looks nice though. Well, yeah. Given the amount of detail in the shadow, there's definitely something going on to get that detail back because this, the, the the rising sun is is like in the corner of the frame. So if there wasn't something done to pull that detail back, it'd be dark. So yeah, it's also it's a it's a very low contrasted image where you would with that, that much sunlight, high, you, yeah, yeah, it would be generally high. So what Victor did was look like he equalized the contrast. And I think it works in this picture a lot because of the textures. Yep. There's the textures of the mountain. There's the texture of the statue. There's the texture of the road and, and the buildings on the dam. They all have this similarity to it. So I think it works really well. It's also nice use of, the you know, having not worrying about flare in the picture. I mean, there's a sun flare, there's some beams of light and there's a little, couple little flares in the sky and it, and it works because I, I tend to like flare when you see the source of the, the light that it's coming from. It's not a distraction. It becomes part of the image. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, counterweight even in the composition because the, the the angel figure is very, you know, visually heavy, yeah. which is yeah. then counterbalanced by the, yeah. the, the, the almost atomic uh, sunburst. Yeah. The only thing I'd be cr- slightly critical of is the two power lines in the yeah. corner. Yeah, but uh, are I noticed we, those as well. But... I'm not sure I am critical of them because what is, what is this? This is a hydroelectric dam. Are they not, as much as the pylon on the mountain in the background, are they not as much part of the story as anything else? Yeah, I see what you're saying. To me, I get that from the, there's a power line in the background on the mountain near the sun. Mm. So I sort of get it from that. But these two disembodied lines or three, they, they don't quite, start anywhere or end anywhere so they're i find my eyes sort of pulled towards them in a way that i'm not sure it's minor and again i'm you know this is being this is picking nits i mean if it was me this is where my photoshop skills would probably come in and i would you know zip them out really fast and 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 uh you know that's that's a question about you know is it reality is it fake because you're cutting these outlines out but i think you know if if victor maybe moved you know, f- uh, forward maybe a foot, he might have been able to get those wires out. I don't know. I wasn't there. Sometimes it's hard to get those things out. I was going to say, uh, judging by the the fact that stuff that's vertical has already sort of fallen in because of a wide angle, Yeah, I would imagine that if Victor took another step forward, it, it, the picture wouldn't hang together anymore because this Perhaps. is already a wide angle and it's already Perhaps. just yeah. managing to get it all composed. For me, my sometimes my criteria for retouching things like that is if I can't get it out of the picture when I'm actually shooting it, either I'll try to include the whole story so we see what's going on, or I might just retouch it out afterwards because if I was able to find a spot where I could get it mm. uh, removed, I would do that. So it's it's not enough in the picture, and it's not enough out of the picture. So that's why it becomes it becomes an issue for me. It doesn't rem- it it doesn't really take away from the. From all the stuff not, we were talking about, but I'm it's not something quite sure that like, if he was allowed to get any closer than that because I, if I remember correctly, it was still under construction. So I'm not quite sure if he he could have gotten any closer than that. Yeah. Well, I thought it was the was there not a bridge under construction because that is the Hoover Dam which has been around for a wee while. But I know there was a new bridge built next to the Hoover yeah, Dam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So the bridge was under construction, but the dam... But then again, there could have been roadworks to realign the road over the new bridge instead of the old bridge, yeah. so goodness only knows. By it's the just, way, I just want to get this out there because I have been... This has been the first thing I noticed about the picture. There's two Daleks in it! What? I always think that about the Hoover Dam. <laughs> the, the two big towers in uh, on the Hoover Dam, they look like Daleks to me. And so they're in oh, this yeah, picture Dale, too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, again, I was looking at when, when I... And, and I'm not, I'll leave it at this, but... It, it looks like he was trying not to have so many wires in the picture because he, he mm. relegated them to the top corner, which is not a very interesting spot for them. Yes. So, like, again, I don't know. I know Victor, but I don't know his intentions. Uh, and also, you know, he may not have seen them, too. But uh, sometimes we miss these things when we're shooting. But uh, that's it. I think, to me, this is a really strong image. It, it really it is kind of timeless in its look. You yeah. know, it looks like it could have been taken when the when the uh, when the dam was built, or or now there's just no sense of time in it. And and what's interesting is the sense of scale too. Is really, we're like this could be really really large or not. I can't tell, and I like that. I like when a when an image kind of messes with the sense of scale. Well, what also works for me is the color contrast. You have very warm mm. oranges in that rising sun. And cool blues in the sky, and they're together in really quite nice harmony here. Yeah, I agree. It's a great shot. I like it. It is. And and having the sun so straight onto the statue really pulls it out very nicely. Yeah. That that statue is very... The more I look at this picture, the more I find myself drawn to that statue. It's very cool. The more I, I I look at it, the more I'm sad I didn't join him. <laughs> was your bed really that comfortable? Uh, I, can't, I can't really remember what, what happens. <laughs> what, what happens in, in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> well, there is also the other... To, uh, to my point of view, the best way to photograph a sunset is not to go to bed until after you photograph the sunset. Yeah, I think... Because if I remember it correctly, it took a while to drive up, up to the dam as well. So uh, I think the, the picture was taken at, at 6.30ish in the morning. So probably... He had to leave an hour earlier than that, and then I wasn't quite ready. I think I spent the night uh, uh, drinking a few... Uh, a few beers. whiskeys, perchance? Uh, no, not whiskeys. I was drinking beers, I think. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. have good whiskeys. If you look yeah, they blue. do. They have nice bourbons. Mm. Yeah, just don't get Jack Daniels. That doesn't count. <laughs> nah. <laughs> Maker's Mark is nice. Or Maker's, like Maker's Mark is very good. Okay. Um, and any other thoughts on, on Victor's fine photograph before we move on? It's kind of, it's it's kind of slightly mean to, to talk about Victor's photograph when Victor's not on the show. And Victor just said to me last week, I really must be on your photography show sometime. <laughs> well, it's, it's been nice to hear his voice back after some, uh, yes, some yes, yeah. time. Yeah. So hopefully we'll hear it here. Maybe this is, this is, this will encourage Victor to come and join us soon. Well, actually he, he, uh, we, we had some direct Twitter messages back and forth about a week or two ago and he was asking me for some feedback about some of his pictures and great. You know, I gave it to him straight and he really appreciated it. So I think, I think he would not mind us talking about his pictures so much. I think, uh, well, it's only one thing worse than us talking about his pictures is not talking about his pictures. There we go. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to move us into round two. Uh, so for round two, what I said was that if we wanted, we could choose one of our own, but we didn't have to. So I did choose one of my own. And I think I think you did as well, Antonio. Um, yeah. So the picture I have, it'll be in the show notes, obviously. So let's-talk.ie is, I've titled it Ancient Wrath Coffee. And so to me, this picture exists on two levels. 
on the one hand, it's I think it is technically pretty darn decent for one of my early photographs, so I'm happy with how it came out. But the reason I like it so much is because it tells us because it captures something I love about this part of Ireland. So I live in the area of Ireland that's not in Dublin, but is around Dublin. It used to be known as the Pale, um, or the Pale of Settlement. And it's the bit of Ireland where an awful lot of history happened. And this photograph captures 1,500 years of that history, subtly. And the history is in our landscape. You, You can drive through Kildare and not notice any history or if you know what you're looking for, you can drive through Kildare and the history is everywhere. It is blended into our landscape. So, and the left foreground, there is a grassy knoll, for want of a better term. No presidents were shot, but it looks like a grassy knoll with a few trees on it. That is a ring fort. That is an old farmstead. And when I say old, I mean, depending on which historian you believe, Iron Age or Early Middle Ages, so probably the f- the second half of the first millennium, so 580 to 1000 AD-ish. So there was a family. We're pretty sure that these ring forts were inhabited by extended family rather than your modern nuclear family sort of idea. So there was a family living and farming this land, which is very fertile land in Kildare, from that little, little what's now a little hump in the landscape 1000 to 1500 years ago. But at the top of the field, you can clearly see the silhouette of one very obvious large ruin, and there's a small hint of a silhouette of another ruin to the right of it between the trees. And that captures a lot of what happened in Ireland after that. So the Normans landed in Ireland around, uh, well, 1066 to be, no, not 1066, that's, um, no, 11, oh, my history teacher's going to kill me. (laughs) Banno Bay, the 1st of May, and I can't remember the end of the rhyme. I know it was the 1st of May. Um, it was at the start of the, of the second millennium. Um, a long time ago. I mean, the 1st of May, 1162. I think it was 1162. Anyway, a long time ago. And when the Normans took over Ireland, they had a strong base around Dublin, and they granted the land to Norman landowners. And this piece of land we see here, the Rathcoffey Domain, was owned by the Wogan family, who built the giant big castle on that hill. And that castle stood until almost 1900. Now, all that's left of the original castle is the few little is a little bit between the trees because then oh I'm, sorry guys, I just realized I forgot to put into the Skype chat what I'm talking about <laughs> so the <laughs> listeners will see it in the show notes, but that doesn't really help poor Stefan who's looking along now <laughs> oh. <laughs> So the big house we see between the trees in the distance was built in around about, I don't have an exact date, but the land was bought in 1784. So he probably built his house shortly after buying the land. But it was built by a, a British aristocrat who went on, well, maybe aristocrat is the right word, but anyway, you know, an, Anglo, an Anglo-Irish person who went on to be a major part of the United Irishman who launched the first revolution against British rule in Ireland in the ooh, 1798 rebellion, I think that was. So it was the house of uh, William, ha- William Hamilton Rowan, or William, no, not William. Ah, show notes, show notes, show notes. Hamilton Rowan or Rowan Hamilton. His name is given both ways. Archibald, there we go. Archibald Hamilton Rowan, who was one of the first sort of people to to, to actually involved in the launching of the first rebellion against the British, which mm. didn't actually succeed in getting the British out of Ireland for quite some time. 
But that's the start of that bit of our history. And then the house is now in ruins, which is kind of what's happened to the Britain built by the English, or the Ireland built by the English. All of those houses are now sitting in ruins. And so basically there we have a potted history of Ireland in a photograph. Not the best presented potted history, but you get what I mean. <laughs> so, and this is just a random place, you know, about a, a few miles, I think it's six kilometers from my front door that I just passed wow. while cycling really? by, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know it was there. I, I said, oh, I wonder what's down this lane. I haven't been here before. I turned left, and this vista opened out in front of me. And oh, wow. So That's that, nice. to me, captures Kildare. It, there is history everywhere. You just turn a random corner, and there it is. And so that that's why this photograph speaks to me so much, because I think it captures the feeling of Kildare, the historic landscape I live in, and I love so much. So. Can I ask uh, why you choose to go monochromatic, black and white? Because I felt it worked better, which is completely counterintuitive, because that field is full of bright yellow flowers, and that sky is a deep, rich blue. Mm-hmm. And it still works better in my mind than monochrome, and I don't know why. I'm going to say good call. Okay, if you click, there's a link there to the color version. I also like the color version, but I don't think it has the impact in color. No, I think you have the exact same one in color. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I also uploaded a color version, so you can flick over and back between them. Okay, I still I'm looking at another shot that looks like the same place, but it's not the same framing. No, there's one of yeah. the exact, exact the same framing. So it's in the it's in the text underneath the first one. It says I also uploaded a color. Oh, version. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And generate monochrome version. Okay. So you the can actually click between them. The clothes pop up better, I, I think. In the in the color version, the the clothes somehow, yeah. So yeah, the color they fade in the sky, and in the black and white version, they they pop out of the sky. In my yeah. Opinion. Yeah, the contrast in the sky. I do like the color version. I think it works as well because uh, it is a beautiful scene. And I think it helps to see the difference in the uh, – there we go. I'm in New York. so That's, that's the sound of New York. <laughs> it's the sound of New York. But the contrast in the sky is, is – you know, it's more enhanced in the black and white. And um, I don't know. There's something a little more magical. In the black and white version. Well, I think the castle stands out better in black and white than it does in color. Yeah, yeah. Because the yellow is just so... Look at me! I'm yellow! The other thing that's happening in the color version is it looks a lot flatter, meaning the... uh, The distance is compressed or... Yeah, Yeah, everything looks like it's in the same plane. Um, you know, the tree is closer to you, the grassy knoll is a little bit further, medium, and then the building is far away. And they all sort of, and the sky is further away than that. And everything kind of looks on the same plane. And for some reason, the black and white version, I, I get a real sense of steps into distance. So the tree is one step, the grassy knoll is further. I really get a sense of depth in this picture. And it's really interesting that. You know, it's the, it's the exact same picture. You have the same depth of field in it. And it's just something about the monochrome and the contrast. I guess because when you look at monochrome, we're really looking at shapes and form. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow the shapes and form are creating also a contrast with each other. That is helping my eye go from from the right to the left to the right to the back. You know, I'm bouncing around 
like as if I'm yeah, walking towards that house, that that ruin in the background. And I get that more from the black and white. The intent was, you know, that you sort of zigzag tree, ring fort castle, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, the, the composition in the black and white, I know it's exactly the same as the color, but for some reason it just, it, it composes better. Um, again, because you have this contrast, you have the dark tree, the trees in shadow on the top right, and the flowers are light on the bottom left, and they sort of yin-yang each other, you know? So you don't see that much in the, in the uh, color version, the contrast. The, the colors don't really contrast, even though it's yellow and blue, which are contrasting colors. Yeah. But the, the yellow is mostly on the ground and the blue is mostly in the sky. Um, so I, this is a really nice image. I prefer, I prefer the black and white version too. Yeah. It's especially with the clouds. It makes the clouds pop out a little bit more, giving it a more mystic, mysterious look than the, the color version. The color version is indeed a little bit flatter. It makes the, for example, the clouds, uh, they look a little bit bluish. Mm-hmm. The color yes. version, where in the in the black and white version, you really have black and gray clouds, which makes it more interesting to me. Well, I think this is one of the first images where I started having fun with the channel mixer, because basically the reason the sky is so contrasty is because the blue channel has just been turned off, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think the green and red channels are, are what you're seeing then on the on the land. I, 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 yeah, hmm. I've taken this. This photograph is from. No, okay. I th- yeah, I was gonna say Flickr has gotten itself confused because this photograph was re-edited in 2010. This is one of my very early photographs. Mm. Yeah, so re-edited means you, re-up- you re-uploaded it, or? Well, I redid the HDR because this is an oh, HDR image. Yeah. Um, and so I redid the HDR about 2010 when I got good at HDR. Uh, because before then, my HDRs looked a bit HDR-ish, whereas the, this color version does not look like an HDR image, even though mm-hmm. it is, because it's mm. it's completely shot against the light, actually. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I re-edited it in 2010 to get the HDR right. Um, but the image itself, I think, is 2006. I'm not sure that Flickr messed up the uh, date, other than maybe the software that created it when you actually, yeah, it's not it, fair to blame poor Flickr. You're right. Yeah, stripped out the metadata from the time because I'm looking at your metadata and it, it like there's no place on it that has the original date. So no, I, I, I think it's, it's because it's yeah. By when I blended the exposures in yeah. Photomatics, Photomatics created the new TIFF, and that TIFF is going to have been dated on the date I edited the TIFF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's not fair to blame <laughs> blame poor Flickr for that. Have you printed this picture? No, because it's an odd shape. What do you mean? Why? So I tried to get. I wanted to get it done on canvas, but the places that did canvases affordably didn't do canvas in sixteen to nine. I, I don't know. I, to me, there's so much detail in this. The canvas, to, in my opinion, the canvas would lose a lot of detail, and I think the strong part of this picture, to me, is the detail. So this would be, to me, a nice like Poster? sixteen. You know, like a print, like on paper, paper. Okay. Print. I should do that then. Yeah. But it, it was this in your show? You, you had a show recently, right? I had a show, and this one would have been in it if I was if I I just didn't I wasn't able to get an affordable place to print odd shapes. Oh, and that you were doing canvases for the show. I was doing canvases yeah, yeah. because it was primarily actually ironically it was primarily a show for painters. 
Mm-hmm. But right. I opened my gob and went, why is one type of visual art different to another? And uh, yeah. they said, oh, fine, we'll allow photographs in. I look forward to seeing your work. I believe was how the email went. It's like, eep. <laughs> I, I think this would make a very, very nice black and white print on like a... A matte paper or a gloss paper? No, I would do... Uh, no, I don't think matte, in my opinion, would... Okay. It's... Uh, when I say a glossy paper, not not like a photographic glossy paper, but the Epson papers have this um, fiber-based paper, which is very similar to old-style photographic fiber papers, and it's a glossy, it's like a mild glossy surface, and so it, that would help. I don't know. I want to say help the pictures. Not the right word, but I think it would it would give it that. It would help that detail. It would enhance that detail that because there's so much detail in this picture. You want to look at all the. The little yeah, leaves and little petals. Yeah. Yeah, because it's little... it's a beech tree with tiny little leaves and there's so yeah. many tiny little yellow flowers in that flowers, sea. Yeah. 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 So I'd want to see all that stuff really like, you know, yeah. this would have to be a big print. Not huge, but I think it'd have to be a big print. Define you know, big. How many inches on the longest side? Uh, I would probably go, what's the biggest I can go? Um, 17 by 22. I'd like to see it at least in the 22 inches on the long side, 21, okay. 22 inches. I printed the, I've got this great printer, the Epson 3800, which is now, they have the 3880. If I was going to get, uh, tell people to get a printer like that fits in their office, but makes de- great, beautiful prints and of, of a size that's pretty decent, I, w- I would recommend this printer. But the the prints I've made at this size, I've done some landscapes, landscapes, some cloudscapes from my window at that size, and they're just beautiful at that size. It's, they're not too big, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't get this. Hu- you don't want a huge print that you're going to take over an entire wall with, but you want something that you look at and you're like, wow, that's significant. <laughs> and okay. and so I, I look at this and I would say, my my threshold for significant is in the twenty inch range, you know, maybe thirty yeah. inches too. I've I've just re- recently printed some twenty by thirties. Um, I didn't do them at home, but I had them sent out, and those were those are pretty good. But I wouldn't mat them because then they'll get really big. Like you can see the frame size getting huge. But if I was just going to mat them, uh, frame them at their size, twenty by thirty would be good too. So I'm saying in that range. Let's say between twenty and thirty inches. I think uh, yeah, I, I, I th- I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna do that. Yes, I am. Uh, good for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've been yeah. I haven't been sure how to print it, but yeah, no, the, 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 yeah, you've sold me on the idea. Yeah, although I'm seeing that you print, you shot with the what D forty, which is what six megapixels. Six, six megapixels. Okay, so you might have to do some upsampling. So maybe maybe I wouldn't go thirty on that because you might start losing some of the detail just because of upsampling. Mm. You begin to get a little blotchy, but you know twenty. Uh, I think you could go twenty. I've 20 done inches, 20 a. Inches. I've done a three sized. Of course, you you do you Americans don't use a paper size as is. <laughs> I've done A3 size from the D40 and it looked good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what's A3? A3. Oh, come on, Wikipedia. Give me a real answer. A3 paper size is the square root of two. No, give it to me in inches. <laughs> A3 in. Oh, for God's sake. Okay, millimeters. Ah. 30, 40 centimeter, 42 centimeters. Ah. Is about twenty inches? No, about eighteen inches. Yeah, yeah okay, eighteen. Yeah. So that is in your ballpark of significant. Yeah, yeah. I would. 
that would fit my range, but it would be good. Like that's the kind of thing you it, because it's a landscape and you know it's a vista, and I want to look into it. You know, I mean, I'd like mm. to have fill up some of my peripheral vision, but I, but I want to look into it like a window. So um, there's way too much going on in this picture for it to print small because it just it's it's. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it on my screen and it's too small on my. Well, especially since I only uploaded to Flickr at 800 pixels. Yes, why do you do that, by the way? Uh, I now upload them at 1,000, but I don't like to upload them too big because it just makes it too easy for people not to ask me for a print. Okay. Gotcha. And also on a screen, that's kind of okay. Anyway, so that's... Well done. Thank you. Um, So, Antonio, you what picture of yours have you chosen to share with us? Uh, I'm choosing to... Oh, no, you're also not... I'm the only one who's picking one of mine. No, no, you are picking one of mine. No, I picked one of mine. Okay. Um, and, you know, I actually want to give you a better link to it, so... Okay. Uh, just, I, I have this link on on my 500 Pixels website, but I want to, I know I have a better version of this someplace. But it's a photograph I took, uh, a while ago with film, by the way, of the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, the, the kind of story behind it, and it's not really a story. I mean, I live in Brooklyn, so I like taking pictures of the Brooklyn Bridge. And it was with uh, a couple of unique things to this picture. I photographed it with a an 85-millimeter tilt-shift lens on my Nikon. I think it might have been my Nikon F4 camera or F5 camera. It's a film camera, so it's not digital. Uh, so it's essentially a full frame. So uh, in an 85 tilt shift, if, if nobody knows what a tilt shift lens is, is the lens actually can um, rot- uh, sort of shift. How do I describe it? It can shift up and down on the plane of film. So parallel, the, the lens actually shifts, and it can also bend um, towards the perpendicular. So we're used to having the lens be parallel with the film plane. Exactly. And you're saying that with a tilt shift lens, you can make that not be true in two planes. In two planes, yes, you can. You can well, you can shift it so that it's still parallel, but the lens uh, area ch- um, coverage changes. So you can shift up and down and left and right, and then you can move it towards the perpendicular. So in other words, you can make it. You can make it at an angle towards the film plane. And what that does is that it kind of messes with the focus. Um. You'll, you know, we see the tilt shift effect now on apps in, uh, you know, on our iPhone or in Photoshop uh, to try to create like a simulated miniature effect. Um, part of what a tilt shift lens was used for with film often was to photograph architecture so that you could if you could make the film plane and the plane of the architectural object that you're photographing, you could make those as parallel as possible. You would end up with a sharp image throughout the entire um, picture. And does, uh, because usually when you... Sh- does sorry, it also when, remove stuff like keystoning or am I misremembering? It can ha- yes, it can, it can to a certain extent. And there, with Nikon, there was a, there's a 28 millimeter... Um, sorry, there's a 35 millimeter tilt shift lens. Actually, there isn't a tilt shift lens on the wide end. There was... I think Canon always had a... Uh, a couple of tilt shift lenses. Nikon originally only had a shift lens, meaning you could shift the lens up and down, but you couldn't tilt it. Um, but anyway, they were mainly for architecture, but people started using them for 
for doing really interesting portraits because you could like put the eyes in focus and then the rest of the person would be out of focus as you tilted the lens. Anyway, long explanation. Uh, I used it on this picture and I also photographed this picture with black and white slide film. So for those of us who are my age, who've been around, there was a you probably remember there was a slide film from Agfa called Scala. And uh, what was unique about it is that most black and white films were you have to go and develop and you would make prints with. Well, Agfa came out with a film that was a slide film. So essentially you just photographed a black and white image on a piece of transparency. And you had to go to a special place to get it processed, but you ended up with a black and white slide. So it helped me because I didn't have a dark room. So if I wanted to shoot black and white, shooting black and white slides was easier. So I, you know, hiked up to the Brooklyn Bridge. I said, this is a great place to use this lens and this film. And I tilted the lens so that the top and bottom of the Brooklyn Bridge image is kind of out of focus a little bit. And then the center is sort of in focus because that's where the, uh, that's where I was pointing. And I used slide film. Um, I, the only post-processing I did on this picture was I made a little sepia toned in Photoshop so that it would kind of look oldy, old timey. And that was the effect I was going for. I wanted this picture to look like an uh, old time shot of the Brooklyn Bridge. Because the people are in the midground, if you told me, like if you put a, like a scratch or two on that artificially and said to me, <laughs> oh yeah, my great grandfather took this in 1821 or something. Actually, when was the Brooklyn Bridge built? Maybe that, maybe I'm making a fool of myself there, but you know what I mean. 1882, I think, but you're close. I think. Okay, yeah, so, so if you said close. to me, this is turn of the century, 1900, my great-grandfather or my grandfather took this, I would believe you because I cannot see a single modern element in that picture. That That is timeless. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people are obscured. I wasn't focused on them. Um, yeah, because if you saw their fashion, it would break the illusion, but... Yeah, yeah, and... I, I don't know. I This is one of the few pictures of mine. I don't really hang up my pictures on the wall that much, although I've started to more recently. Actually, since I've gotten this printer, I've done it a lot more. But this is one of those pictures that I look at and I'm like, I, you know, it really, I mean, I was going for an old-timey feeling. I succeeded, and it really, and it's like, I took this picture while I was alive. <laughs> it wasn't taken yeah. in the past. Yeah. And well, I didn't have to do a lot of manipulation to it. I mean, this is, again, this is, pre-Photoshop, although I did well, I did scan it and bring it into Photoshop, but it was not, uh, you know, I was still shooting with film back then. Um, and I like the optics of it. I like, you know, I know the, this tilt-shift effects on software now, but they don't come close to what a real lens, tilt-shift lens can do. Yeah, I, I think actually the tilt-shift probably makes this feel more genuinely old than the sepia tone, because when people had cameras with bellows, they were all tilt-shift. Right, right, right. So not having the ability to tilt and shift is a recent phenomenon with our little, you know, 35-millimeter cameras and so forth. Right. So I think the yeah. fact that that out-of-focusness is there in the optics is probably why it is so convincingly old. Yeah, and if you also notice that the, that the, the tower of the bridge is not keystoning in. So yes. that's an effect of the tilt-shift lens. I kept it so that the lines would be straight. So it does kind of fit the old-time cameras. The old-time cameras, you were able to, to straighten out the lines in architecture. So I think it would lose the illusion a little bit if, it, if that uh, tower keystoned in a little bit, meaning that the, the, 
bottom of the tower would be wider than the top of the tower. And most, like, if you if you wander up there with an iPhone today, you would have a very keystoned bridge. Naturally, because you have to point the camera up. Yeah. You'd have to be far enough back to not get that effect. Um, so I guess with a massive telephoto zoom and you flatten half of New York. Right, right. <laughs> and the bridge is not that long enough for you to be able to get that kind of... Yes, you know, that's why you'd have to flatten New York. You'd have to be off the yeah. bridge. No, I, yeah. I actually really like the composition because the out-of-focus foreground makes you really want to go in. Like, you know, and there seems to be, I don't know what that little square is in the distance, but it almost looks like a doorway that's inviting you forward. I, I mean, I presume it isn't a doorway, but I don't oh, know what Oh, all the way is. in the back underneath yeah. the arch, right? I think that's, that's a building in Brooklyn. So really? I'm, I'm pointed, I'm essentially pointed uh, east-ish because yeah. um, I'm crossing from Manhattan to Brooklyn, and I think that's a building... Uh, on the other side of Brooklyn, which has also been there since you know, for a very long time too, it's an old building. Yeah, the, the, the sense of depth is fantastic. You really are just yeah. sucked into the image. Yeah. And are they like those old fashioned looking streetlights? They're obviously still there. Which they is are still there. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. The, it, I think they've been they we've been refurbishing the the Brooklyn Bridge since I made this picture, so it might not look exactly the same. I think the. The railings on the side might be a little bit bigger. There might be some benches and stuff like that. But it generally looks the same. Um, cool. And to to go back to what I was saying about before, like to me, I've printed this picture. And to me, this is a picture that works very good small. Um, the the By printing it small, it also creates that feeling of the old time because we're so used to seeing old pictures very small. Well, they are, they are a certain size, aren't they? And the torn age that, you've, that you have on it from the processing as well gives that same feeling of... The, the picture like your grandmother has... The torn edge is, is the, the slide mount. I didn't crop really? this. This is just a full... I scanned it full frame. So that's just the cardboard mount of the slide. Oh, and I cool. just decided to leave it there. So that's why it looks so much like paper, because it is. Because it is cardboard, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, also, uh, this is also a great example of how almost perfect symmetry makes a really compelling photo, because the bridge is, you know... The verticals are vertical, the two arches are symmetrical, but the street lights are out. Right. That's they're staggered. And so they staggered. Yeah. They add a little bit of imperfection to perfect symmetry, and that I think always makes a stronger image than actual perfect symmetry. I think it's also a nice uh, a nice example of, of uh, great timing because if if you would have taken the shot a little bit later then the people were more in the foreground, it it's it probably wouldn't have worked as well as now. Mm, yeah, yeah. That that whole empty space in the foreground. I think I was yeah. really lucky that yeah, yeah. there wasn't a lot of people. Uh, yeah, how often do you get that on the Brooklyn Bridge? Empty space. Well, you go there in the winter when it's a nasty day, perhaps. But uh, actually, this this is an interesting question. Was it a foggy day? Because I see nothing behind Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah you know, I cannot remember, but probably, probably because I like going there on on foggy days. But what this also does, the, the other part of this that mimics the old style pictures that old style film was not sensitive to certain color wavelengths of color so oversensitive to blue wasn't it so the skies would white out would white out so all those pictures you see like you know the matthew brady civil war pictures of landscapes or anybody of landscapes and you would see the sky was always white and think what's going on there it's just because the film that they were using or the 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 light sensitive emulsions that they were using were just not that sensitive to it so they would white they would white out and you know, a great thing to do on on foggy days is to, create, to try to recreate that effect, is to you know get rid of all the detail in the sky. So I think that adds to it. It, it it's part of the vocabulary of old style photographs. 
Yes, so, so the film was not panchromatic, which is, if you're exactly. ever wondering why it says panchromatic on modern rolls of colour film, what that means is the blue is, it's sensitive to red, white and blue, or red, not red, white and blue, red, green and blue. <laughs> it's sensitive, sensitive to all, to the wide range of colours, panchromatic, yeah. uh, pan, pan meaning yeah. all, yeah, all. I think it's all or certainly across pan. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's my that's my story, and I like this. I mean, originally it was a slide, so it was a thirty-five millimeter slide. I scanned it on my Nikon scanner. Uh, I might have cleaned up some of the dust because when you scan, you, you always pick up a lot of dust and particles, and so I get it back to the original form yeah. by doing that. And then the little bit of the sepia. It might be a little extreme on 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 the link I'm showing you. I, I tend to like it a little bit more subtle. But it's hard to tell. So well, I, I actually, I have to say, so on the on the on the, if anyone's looking on five hundred px, if you click it again, it goes with a black background, and if you click it again, it goes to white, and then to black, and then to white. I think it works superbly well on black. Yes, it almost yes, that's true too. It looks like a. It, I don't know. The black suits it really well because it makes that whited out sky feel right. Yeah. Whereas on the yeah. white, the the white is shouting at you more than the picture, which is wrong. Yeah. White's a terrible color, actually. So no one tell 500px it should be gray. <laughs> <laughs> or flicker, actually, now I think about it. Never mind. Yeah. Excellent. So how's that? Thank, thank nice. you, Antonio. That's it's a nice. really lovely picture. So, thank you. Stefan, you are sharing one of your own. Do, do you want to tell us the story here? Again, let's-talk.ie. All these photos are in the show notes, so you can follow along at home. Yeah, well, I, ha- I picked two shots of mine, which I, I took in Bohuinos uh, Mir, which is a nature reserve here, uh, not all too far from Ghent. And it consists mainly of uh, a big pond of uh, a big flooded area in the winter. So in the winter, it's it's, it's a lot of water and you have uh, some trees around it and a nice uh, uh, path to walk or to run. And I go there every uh, every two or three days. I go there for a quick run because it's, uh, it's seven kilometer uh, uh, run of seven kilometer the whole tour of of the 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 area cool. and I was noticing uh, in the afternoon that uh, we had some pretty nice colors in in the sky and some some clouds were coming up so i I went back home and grabbed my camera and I drove back uh, to the area and I stayed there until late in the evening until the the, the sun was really starting to set and you had really had some nice red yellow colors in the sky and together with uh, the, the combination with the clouds. And the reflection on the, the flooded area on, on the water, it was really, really beautiful to see. So I picked uh, two uh, of the images I shot there. And I was, I was wondering what your opinion was on the two, because they are both taken about uh, the same time, probably, I think, 20, 30 minutes apart of each other, uh, approximately at the same location. But one uh, one of them has uh, uh, the, the, how do you call that, the barbed wire in front uh, because yeah, you can't, like a little you can't fence really, or something. Yeah. yeah, there's a little fence there, some some barbed uh, Which people have told me it, it, it's it's great because it gives you a, a place to stand in the picture. And um, the second picture is approximately the same one, but uh, pointed slightly more to the left. Uh, which, yeah, you don't see the barbed wire, the fence in in it, and it has a little bit more uh, more clouds and more reflection on the water. And I was wondering which. Which one of the the two you guys would prefer? Because I've, I've I've been getting mixed feedback on that. Some people say, okay, the picture without the fence is, is better because it has more color, more uh, more texture in the sky, and the other one gives you a place to stand in because you know you can go up to the fence and no further than that. 
You see, I'm pretty sure I'm the. I would have been one of the people who's saying, you know, the, the place to stand makes it a better picture. And now I'm going to completely disagree with the me of the last time you asked me this question, because <laughs> the me of today thinks that having having two thirds sky, one third land, one third I say land, one third water. Uh, I actually find that image is really drawing my eye much more than the other one, which is. Yeah, and you will probably be one of the people who mentions uh, the place to stand as a. I would as because a, as a viewer. as a rule, it's one of the things I like. But you see, the one with the place to stand captures the feeling of the place better. I can imagine being out on a run and seeing it, and the other one is almost otherworldly with those spectacular colors and you know reflected again. So, so the me of today and the humor I'm in today thinks that that the one with two thirds sky works really well. I'm I'm gonna agree with you as well. And for me, the place to stand though is like I, I don't need the fence to tell me where I am. The water gives me the sense that I'm at the shoreline. Mm-hmm. Well, you know? maybe the water gives you the sense that you're not sure: is this taken from a boat? Is this taken from a bridge? Is this taken from a causeway? Is this taken from the edge? Maybe that mystery adds something. Perhaps um, the 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 thing about the fence is that. Again, there's just not, I don't know. Um, I find the fence a little obscured by some of the foreground um, stuff, like there's grasses or, or, or something in the water, and some of the fence is just not seen. I can see a little bit of it, um, yeah, the, the top line of it. And so maybe if the fence was more fancy you know that i saw this distinguished fence i would have that better feeling of space plus i'm a little distracted by that one um twig that sort of cuts across the water that has no that has no place i don't mind the ones on the right because i can see the the tree but that one sort of i don't know what it is is it a stick or is it a fence thing that's knocked over i can't tell it's a so yeah so the other one that doesn't have it which is the two-thirds sky one-third water offers me this view that is um, just incredible. And, you know, I know these kind of clouds. And you see this kind of stuff and you're like, it's like a magic moment. Um, mm. To me, this sky is magic. Uh, it, it's as magic with the, with, the, with the fence there, but it's even magical or magical. <laughs> it's got more <laughs> magic than... <laughs> I had a long day today so far. So it, it, there's something, there's a real sense of fire and well, It's know, at that something. magic moment because from where we're standing, the sun is below the horizon, but it, it yeah, can be only just below the horizon because those yeah. clouds are obviously still in full powered sunlight. Yeah. And that, that doesn't last long, that magic moment. I mean, a, a lot of your photos capture this as well, Antonio, this very, very short magical window where the land is in darkness and the sky is still in sunset. Yeah. You know, part of me would almost want to see it a little wider. You know, I don't know what was on the left or right and I'm not saying that it's, it's not, it ought to have more, but I, like as a, I want to see like the left part of these clouds and the right part of these because I could just see this being a really, like almost a panoramic shot. And I'm still getting that effect of a like a space that's bigger than me. Well, uh, the problem is like on the right side, there were uh, you have some. You can slightly see them from the middle. There are some buildings in the in the in the background behind the, behind the trees, and they were really sticking out at the, on the right side. So, oh, I see. Didn't yeah, really, yeah. Yeah, but it, I didn't feel. You know, I'm not. That. I get Maybe that. Maybe on the left side, yeah. Yeah, it's it's still it's like I want. I'm not. 
I'm not saying this takes away from the picture. So it's like I can see that this is like I can just feel what it's like to be there. Yeah, probably I should have taken a few uh, pictures and tried to stitch them together or something. Oh, oh shit. Or in, in the modern days of the iPhone, well, I don't think you could probably get this nice um, tonal range with the iPhone. Maybe no, no, I've tried these these kind of shots with the iPhone and it and it, it just cannot handle that sky, you know, the the sky in the background and the clouds. It just blows out those those colors. So. Yeah, no, because yeah, there are times when a DSLR does you you know is is the right tool for the job, and this kind of lighting is definitely one of those. But you know, the power of that iPhone through the panel, you'd have to wonder if it couldn't manage. Maybe the next one would manage. Yeah, you're right. Actually, the left wants to be seen. <laughs> actually, I think it's the left more than the right because the clouds are sort of making a V with their reflection of themselves. Oh, I see. They want to go. Yeah, you want to get the. Uh, so, so if you imagine, you kind of want to see the V come more to a point. But what yeah, maybe works? Wider, what? wider lens or something would have. Yeah, I didn't have a wider lens than that. I, I, yeah, I think a pano would have been your only bet. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, really then has works, the fun of stitching panos. What works for me in this picture, though, is the color. I mean, this is so much about the color of the sunset, and it. You well, seem to have been able too, to capture that that look that I always say it. It's very hard to get. Like those, you know that the sky up there is turning blue, and those clouds are orange, and there's a great contrast of color. And and I think you captured it in here. So, um, I was, I mean, that's what it's about. Not the not the standing someplace. To me, this is about the the color and the reflections. So I was pretty I happy when I, and I've seen the, the result on back on my camera. I, I remember saying at that time, yes, I finally have a pretty image from the looks of... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because there's so much texture in the clouds, you know that that color isn't blown out. You know that color has really been captured. And it, yeah. I think the texture makes it feel more real. It's almost like the sky is on fire. Like that is an inferno of a sky. Yeah. That yeah. Rich, rich gold and all that little subtle texture in it. Another one I think that would make a really good print too. I mean, I like to see things in print too. This would be, yeah, yeah, maybe be worth putting into the world. It, it it is such a magical sky. Yeah, and and actually, the ground in this case is really just there to echo the sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it also echoes the 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 trees in the background. I mean, you get all this those tree reflections on the right. On yeah, pictures. So the way they're sort of rippling, and they're not exact because the water is rippling, so they're not an exact reflection. They're no, kind of an impressionistic reflection mm. on the left side of the image. I, oh, sorry, on the right side. The right, right side. yeah. Sorry, but on yeah, the, yeah. I think on the left right side the of the way. image, I, I was I was losing that effect because at that time the uh, the, the big pond you see there was uh, was starting oh, yeah. to to close to freeze. Uh, oh. So it's all you you start to notice it on on the left side. It's not really water anymore. It's it's ice. Oh, I thought it was wind blowing the water. That's mm. interesting. I, I remember again, it was the, snowing uh, the, the, the next day or two days later. Wow. Oh. And just those reflections of the trees on the right, though, are just... Uh, they are divine, actually. That that whole right, yeah. bot- light corner, the light, whole right bottom corner is beautiful. Yeah. Hmm. Now, that's the kind of picture you can sort of just stare at at Friars. I don't think it's making very good radio, but I'm just sitting here going, ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where where people are listening to this and they're going to have to try to visualize it until they get back to their computers and click on the links. But, yeah, uh, this is very much a re- go to the website and look at the links podcast episode. Um, 
Actually, I'd be very curious for listeners, any feedback you have on this episode. It, uh, I've enjoyed doing it, but maybe it isn't good listening. So do let me know what people think. Uh, any final thoughts on this image? I want to take a picture like that. So it's about... Yeah, I'll second that. Like that. It's, yeah. it, it's really beautiful. Uh, we had picked more, but I'm going to call it a day at this. I think I think we're we're going for over an hour now, and I think that's as much... Uh, people are going to stop listening to us when we tell them it's beautiful if we keep going. So we can save our other great picks for a future Well, show. they got a lot of education from this one, too, at the beginning. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. So we're going to call it... We're going to leave it there for now. Um... So, listeners, definitely give me your feedback on this episode. It's it's been an experiment, and uh, you know, an, an experiment isn't over till the data's in. So, let let me know uh, whether you, if you like it, let me know. If you dislike it, let me know. If you think it's a good idea, but we went astray, let me know. Let me know, basically. So uh, you can go to letstalk.ie, leave a comment on the episode. That would be much appreciated. Also, if this has inspired you to talk about a photograph that you love by someone else or that you, you love of your own, why not send us in a recording so that the next time we do one of these episodes, if there is a next time, we get to play what listeners think and we can put a listener's photograph in the show notes and then we can get a, another point of view. So, again, if you go to the um, the website, you can contact me there. Okay, uh, folks, thank you very much for giving of your time. Um, I was going to say in reverse order, but I can't remember what order we went in. Um, Stefan, do you want to let people know where you can be found? Yes, uh, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can do that uh, through Twitter or Facebook using my name, Stefan Lassage, S-T-E-F-A-N-L-E-S-A-G-E. And if you speak or understand Dutch and you're interested in a, in a, a Dutch technology podcast, then by all means, go pay a visit to uh, tech45.eu. And it's a 45 minute, well, I say a 45 minute podcast. In theory, it's a 45 minute podcast. <laughs> we try to. Um, on technology every week. And it's actually a very broad range because it's not an Apple show or an Android show or a Windows show. It's a technology show. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. Yes. I don't always agree with everyone on the show, but it's, I always enjoy listening. Yeah. But that's same, good. Like, same, same for me. I don't always agree with everyone here. So. Well, that's what makes it a good show, actually, yeah. to be honest. If everyone just says, oh, yeah, you're dead right. It's a very boring podcast. Um, Antonio, what links would you like to give out? And do definitely plug your very good podcast. Okay, I would like to give out my... Uh, well, you can look for me on Flickr at AM Rosario. Uh, that's where you'll see a lot of the pictures we were talking about. Of course, you're putting them in the show notes. But yes, uh, I'm at generally with my partner, Tom... Martinez at uh, switchtomanual.com and we just did our 25th podcast the Street Shots podcast with the Switch to Manual guy so uh, very much inspired by my experiences being with uh, both of you guys here ironically uh, you're on show 25 when we're on show 22 <laughs> yeah our, our, our time space continuum scale is a little different yeah, I'm a but weirdo the, for doing a monthly podcast, <laughs> but it works. Yeah, we, I don't know. If we were trying to do it. Uh, uh, we were doing it uh, every other week, and somehow we got caught up into doing it every week. And uh, I think we might try to stick to that. So, yeah, we just did our 25th one, which was about uh, portfolio reviews. Kind of, it was in a similar vein to what we were doing today. Um, yeah, it's kind of we not actually an accident because. I was like, what am I going to do for this month's show? And then I went for a big, long cycle 
through most of actually through the places in my photograph and I was listening to you guys talking about portfolio reviews and I was like no that's what I want to I want to talk about photographs so that's how this episode came to be so well it's nice to talk about the pictures I mean it's a you know it's yeah and it's called let's talk photo so you know I thought we I mean really we're do, you were doing you know radio about visual things so there's going to have to be a lot of talking about and describing so I, I, by the way I think this was a good experiment I I enjoyed doing this I like talking about the pictures and describing what I see Excellent. So, uh, yeah, so we're doing it on Switch to Manual. So switch to manual.com and uh, Twitter at switch the number two manual. So switch to manual. And, uh, you know, we're on Facebook and, you know, you can just Google us. We're everywhere. But, uh, yeah, check us out on our on our podcast, too. Very much, like I said, inspired by hanging out with both of you guys here. So thanks a lot. Okay. So, again, a reminder, the show notes with the photographs at lets-talk.ie. And while you happen to be there, you might notice there's two big blue buttons in the top left of the menu bar that say support the show. I would ask people to please consider supporting the show. The, as I say every time, the aim is not to make a profit off this, but the aim is to break even. And I kind of needed to do that at the moment. So if you feel like contributing, please do. If you don't, don't worry about it. And even if the only way you help is by telling your friends about the show, that is worth loads. So by all means, or dropping a review on iTunes, there's so many ways to, to help out the show, and I appreciate them all. With that, uh, I think it's time to say, oh, yeah, I've been your host, Bart Bouchot. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next month, happy snapping. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. I don't know who you are, but I will find you. And when I do, you had better be listening to the Tech Fan Podcast. Because if you're not, well, you may not live long enough to regret it. Remember, it's called the Tech Fan Podcast. Listen, and you won't regret it.